time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, March 12th, 2009. All kinds of stuff going on today. And I'm sure you want to hear about it. Well, funny enough, we want to tell you. Or at least I do. Sorry, I was out of the uh, studio yesterday out there trying to promote Pirate Christian Radio. Get the word out about PCR so that people can hear the gospel. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, here dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal here of Fighting for the Faith is to help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to learn how to defend the Christian faith, and part of that involves teaching you what the Christian faith is and what it isn't. This is the program that people may have warned you about. Don't listen to this guy. He's going to make you dissatisfied with your church. And this is true. This could happen, and it's happened to plenty of PCR uh, Fighting for the Faith listeners. Why? Well, because there's a lot of pastors out there who seem to think that their job is to entertain sheep rather than feed, I'm sorry, entertain goats. Goats being unbelievers. Now, I, I'm not calling them a name in the sense by saying, you know, you know, listen, you goats out there, you're nothing but a goat. No, 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 no. It, it's referring to the, uh, the sheep and the goat judgment where goats are unbelievers and goats are cute, by the way. I know people who have goats. Uh, and uh, and sheep are considered to be believers. But, you know, there's a lot of pastors out there who maybe you're not giving the goods. They think it's more important to entertain goats or they're not preaching the gospel. You'll find out that Fighting for the Faith is, the pro- is a program where my axe to grind is the axe of the gospel. Got a good program lined up today. It's going to be a little bit different well, we're not going to do a real. We're not going to do a sermon review today. <laughs> People are going, Whew, I need a break from those sermon reviews, Chris. I can't stand how those awful sermons that you uh, review. <laughs> yeah, I need a little bit of a, of one myself. Here's what we got going today. Although that's not to say there won't be some bad stuff that we got to take a look at and compare to the Word of God. Uh, first of all, we're going to be uh, reading an email. From Ben Mordecai. Now, Ben is the guy who called me out on this fact that that, the underwear does appear in the scripture. So uh, when it (laughs) Ben has demonstrated that he is capable of of good biblical discernment and that we now can officially say that underwear is in the New Testament. You just have to know where to look for it. And uh, but he's written me an email regarding baptism, which is a great occasion for uh, doing a little bit of biblical discernment work and working with some of the principles that we constantly reiterate here at Fighting for the Faith. Number one is sola scriptura. That is, we believe that the Bible alone is the sole authority when it comes to truth and sound doctrine, as, especially as it pertains to God. So that being the case, we're going we're to use this as kind of an instructional uh, email to take a look at uh, several passages in context to see what the passages say to determine what it is the Bible teaches regarding baptism. That'll be our topic. I've also got audio from a, from a different radio program, which is a little bit odd. We're going to be playing audio from a different radio program uh, that has in it statements made by the author of the book, The Shack, William Young. 
And uh, we're going to play that in context for you and uh, have it as a repository here because in this interview, William Young outright in his own words denies the penal substitutionary atonement. Um, you know, that, that alone in my mind puts him outside of Christianity and he redefines Christianity. He sounds like an emergent in this interview. And so this is so important to get out. We're going to spend some time replaying that interview from a different radio station altogether. In fact, let me see if I got the data here. Oh yeah. The, the guy who's interviewing him, his name is pastor Kendall Adams and he's out of Burlington, Iowa, on uh, station KAYP, and so we're going to be playing that. This was an interview he did with uh, William Young back at the beginning of this month, so maybe about a week, week and a half ago. And then to uh, round out the program today, I'm going to be playing uh, an interview that I did earlier today with Dr. Adam Francisco of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he's uh, one of the editors of Pirate Christian Radio's book of the month, uh, Theologia et Apologia. He has an in, he has an essay in the book itself on Luther's response and apologetic regarding Islam. So we're going to be talking about Islam today with uh, Dr. Adam Francisco. So this is going to be a it's going to be a good program, although it's a little bit different as far as our format is concerned. But uh, that being the case, we'll dive right in. So let's uh, <clears throat> immediately turn to young Ben Mordecai's email to me. And the topic is baptism. Ben writes, he says, hey, Chris, thanks for reading my previous email. That was a riot. I'm sure you enjoyed that. You know, just sticking it to me on the whole underwear thing. (laughs) I got to be careful what I say. You wouldn't catch it in an English translation, though. You have to actually know the Greek. You have to look it up in the Greek to catch the whole Dorcas and underwear thing. Thanks, Ben. Anyway, he says, also, I was talking with a friend of mine who stopped listening to your show because she says that your views on baptism are heretical. Now, now Ben, them is fighting words. No, actually, they're not. But uh, I I think she overstates the point, and we'll, we'll get into this here. He Ben says, I wouldn't go that far, but I am also a little concerned about your views on baptism. Here's why. You have said once that when you are doubting your salvation, you should look to your baptism for assurance. Now, this caused me to wonder, what if I was baptized as an infant? What if I was baptized as an infant? And I grew up and denied the gospel outright. Could I turn to my baptism for assurance? Would I not be saved because I don't have faith? I should not turn to my baptism because my supposed baptism was worthless. The water was nothing. Now, Ben, we're going to have to have, we're going to do a little catechism here uh, today. Um, so Ben continues, says, that is why I differentiate between water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he quotes to me, 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, it looks like 21, maybe 22. Here's what the passage says. Baptism, which correspond to this now, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So the dirt removal side is nothing but a picture. The Holy Spirit side actually saves. If the appeal to God saves through the resurrection, it may or may not correspond to the removal of uh, dirt side of baptism. When you say that baptism is something that God does, you are right that God baptizes with the Holy Spirit, but man baptizes with water. So how can we trust that man's hands are causing God to baptize? All right, now, Ben, let me help you out here. You're dealing with a little bit of, there's some category 
stuff that we've got to sort out. And what we're going to do is we're going to just take these, this occasion to walk through some passages with the understanding that it's God's word that determines what baptism does. And I want to take a look at how you're handling this passage. Okay. Um, I, I've had, I've talked with other people who deal with first Peter chapter three twenty one in a similar way. And they say, this is not a water baptism. This is a, this is a dry spirit baptism. And that's not what the passage is doing at all. When you look at it in context. Okay. So that being the case, we're going to start off first. I know this is going to drive some of you crazy, um, we're going to start off first by looking at Luther's small catechism and what it says about baptism. Why? Why am I starting there rather than the Bible? Well, I'm starting here because I believe that Luther's small catechism correctly summarizes the biblical teaching on baptism. Okay. Now, if you want to, if you want to knock the catechism, show me from God's word where what he is saying isn't true. So we read in Luther's small catechism on the section called the sacrament of holy baptism. And I'll put a link up at fighting for the faith to uh, Luther's catechism so that you can read the whole thing if you would like to. Um, it's, it's so the nature of baptism. What is baptism? Luther writes or asks the answer. Baptism is not simply water only, but it is the water comprehended in God's command and connected with God's word. So what is baptism? It is water and word mixed together. That's in fact, you can say that's, you know, kind of a nutshell definition of a sacrament. Okay. So which is that word of God? The answer is it's um, our Christ. Our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, go ye and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy ghost. Okay. So what does baptism give or what does it profit? Answer, baptism works forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare, which are such words, Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he that does not believe shall be damned. Okay. Um, how can water do such great things? Now, Ben, this is kind of the question we've got to focus in on here. Because in your email, you said that uh, you, you may basically, you know, you point near your hypothetical, you're basically saying the water was nothing. Okay, listen, ordinary water by itself can't do nothing. Okay, but see, it's not water alone that makes the baptism. Okay, it's water and God's word. Okay, so we read. It is not the water indeed that does them, but the word of God, which is in and with the water and faith, which trusts such word of God in the water. For without the word of God, the water is simple water and not baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism that is a gracious water of life and a washing of regeneration in the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. Okay, so what does such baptizing with water signify? Answer, it signifies that the old Adam in us 
should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil lusts, and again a new man daily come forth and arise, who shall live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And where is this written? St. Paul says in Romans the 6th chapter, We are buried with Christ by baptism and death, that like as he was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Okay, now... That's a summary of what I believe to be the biblical teaching on baptism. I think Luther got it right in the small catechism. And if you want to challenge Luther or you know on this, you're absolutely free to do so, and I encourage you to do so. However, your, your challenges need to be based upon the Word of God, plain and simple. You can't just say, I disagree. I don't like that. No. Sola Scriptura, God's word alone decides what baptism is, okay? So, Ben, you point out that baptism, that water does nothing. Well, in a sense, you're right. Water can't do anything. It's water with the word. That's what makes a baptism, okay? And um, let me now kind of come back, and we'll just do a little bit of groundwork here, okay? There's a whole group of people, and I used to be one of them, Okay? I are not one now. That's bad grammar. Um, I used to be a person who believed that baptism was me via an act of obedience on my part, letting myself tell the whole world that I've identified myself with Jesus and made a decision for him. Okay, now, Ben, I don't know what you believe about baptism. I'm not saying that that's your doctrine. I'm just telling you that that's what I grew up with. Now, Ben, it would help us out here a little bit if you would tell us uh, what it is that you believe regarding baptism. I can't assume for you because I don't really have any data on that. Now, this seems to be the majority position within the Christian church in America right now. I'll say this, though. That is a very new understanding of baptism and is not is not the majority view of, of baptism throughout the ages. Okay. Now, if you want a good example of taking a look, just go back into the early church fathers and get their idea of what it is that baptism was all about. I would recommend, and maybe I can find a way to link up to this. I'm not sure. Um, Tertullian. Okay. Tertullian was one of the early church fathers and Tertullian, he lived between 160 AD and 220 AD. And, um, this gentleman, Tertullian, was an apologist. He uh, he wrote against heretics. Unfortunately, later in life, he became a Montanist, uh, Montanist, and uh, which is you know which later was branded as a heresy. Um, so you know this you have to you have to read Tertullian with discernment, okay? But in uh, we've got we've got an actual writing from Tertullian on baptism, okay? And in so if you look up Google it Tertullian on baptism, and you will find that he's written a very nice little treatise on what it is and what it isn't. There was heresies regarding baptism back in his days, and Tertullian is easy, is really early, and I think he gives a good example of how the early church treated baptism. Okay, and it's nothing like what uh, what Americans treat it like as today. The reason why. To an, an American evangelical, I would sound like a heretic when it comes to baptism is because they're not familiar with this teaching. And unfortunately, 
Uh, there's there's so many people out there who are just told, oh, baptism is, is me telling the whole world that I've made a decision for Jesus. Hogwash. That's not what it is at all. And there's no passages in the scripture that defend that. Now, coming back to my email, though, uh, my, my original statement, uh, Ben, in your email, the thing I was pointing out, okay, is that baptism is this powerful, powerful thing that's done to us by God. It is not something we do. It is something that God does. And as far as, you know, what is it that I have to do to get God to do it? God promises to do it. Go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the gifts and promises associated with baptism are there. And it doesn't matter if the, the pastor administering the baptism is a charlatan. Baptism is what it is because God has promised that it is what it is. And he, God is true to his word. Okay, so what I was pointing to in my original statement had to do with the fact that it's a powerful gift and promise given to us. There's powerful promises in our baptism, and we in our daily Christian walk can look to those promises because they are outside of us. The, the, it's not, it's not dependent upon my sincerity. It's not dependent on my commitment level. It's not be, dependent upon whether or not, uh, you know, I'm sinless enough or good enough or smart enough or anything like that. Okay. By pointing people to baptism and the promises, I'm trying to get people to look outside of themselves and use the things that God's word has given us as a means of building faith, especially in times of doubt. Okay, so when you when I the, the the situation I set up is for a Christian believer who is doubting their salvation or doubting whether or not God can forgive him or doubting whatever. Okay, when somebody when somebody who is a Christian believer is having a moment of doubt, the last thing I want to do is turn that person farther in on themselves. They're already bent in on themselves. We need to give them a word from outside of themselves. And which kind of leads to a second email. I'm, I'm going to uh, bring in another email here. This is an email from Pastor John Fromm from Gloria Christi Church, uh, Lutheran Church in Greeley, Colorado. Okay. Uh, listen to what uh, he, he brings. Uh, he's talking about this exact topic. And uh, Pastor John Fromm says this. He says, in his treatise against the heavenly prophets, which were the Schwermerai, uh, the kind of the hyper charismatic Pentecostals of Luther's day, Luther writes, if I now seek the forgiveness of sins, I do not run to the cross, for I will not find it given there, nor must I hold to the suffering of Christ, as Dr. Karlstadt trifles, in knowledge or remembrance, for if I, for I will not find it there either. I will find in the sacraments or the gospel the word which distributes, presents, and offers and gives to me that forgiveness which was won on the cross. Now, Luther's point here is this is that you you want to know whether or not your sins are forgiven. You need to hear that from outside of yourself. And where do we hear about the forgiveness of sins? Well, number one, in our baptism. Okay, and we're, we'll, we'll get into the passage passages here in a minute. Number two, we also receive that in the sacraments. When we go to receive the Lord's Supper, okay, especially in the Lutheran Church, and you know, I don't know how this goes on in some other traditions, but when we go up, we hear in the words of institution, take, eat, this is my body, broken for you, this do as often as you, you know, take, drink, this, you know, this is the cup of the blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so 
This is stuff that is outside of us. So Pastor John Fromm points out, he says, the external word of the gospel comes into our ears repeatedly. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that external word delivers what was purchased once for all on the cross. Baptism comes from outside of us, externos, and delivers the gifts of salvation. Spirit baptism and water baptism are one and the same in, in that essence and work. So, you know, I just wanted to point that out. By the way, Pastor John Fromm was basically coming back to the whole self-forgiveness thing. And uh, he's, his, his, which was the topic we did two days ago, uh, Pastor Fromm says, self-forgiveness should really be transformed from being absolved and learning to think of yourself as God sees you. It is not... It is not I who live, but it is Christ who dwells in me from outside going in via the means of grace received in faith. Yeah, you're right. Good email, Pastor Fromm. Okay, now, Ben, I brought in Pastor Fromm here to kind of help out with this concept. So baptism is something that is God's work. It's not ours. Now, I've made all these claims, and I want to review some passages with you so you see what I'm talking about here. And so we're going to spend some time in God's Word regarding baptism, and, and I, hopefully in the course of doing this, we can defend, I can defend myself against the charge of heresy, okay? All right, we're going to start off, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, Acts ta- chapter 2, the specific passage we want to look at regarding baptism is uh, two ver- uh, chapter 2, verse 38. So Acts 2, okay. And what's our primary rule here when we're dealing with God's Word? Context, 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 okay. So in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen. Gifts, the gift of tongues is given to the, the Christians in the upper room. Tongues of fire fall on them, and God, the Holy Spirit, empowers them to preach the good news and the wonders of God, and people hear this in their own languages, okay? Then Peter stands up, and he addresses the crowd, and he delivers his great Pentecost Day sermon, okay? And so I'm going to back up to verse 29, so we pick up in the, you know, towards the tail end of the sermon, and I want you to hear what uh, what the Apostle Peter says about baptism, you know, as we get through this passage. Now, brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and he was buried and his tomb is is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, the Messiah, and this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, the people were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, listen carefully, repent 
and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice here, uh, Ben, in this particular passage, Peter is clear. Baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, and along with it, you get the gift of the Spirit. Peter is making no distinction whatsoever here in this passage between spirit baptism and water baptism. It's all wrapped up together. And the forgiveness of sins is being offered through the water of waters of baptism, right? That's what the text says, for the forgiveness of sins, not for your identification with Jesus Christ so that the world might know that you made a decision for him. By the way, that's decision theology. It's Pelagian, semi-Pelagian at best, and it's not what the Bible teaches. What we hear in Scripture is that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. God's word is true. Baptism, therefore, delivers what God's word says it delivers. Okay? Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. We're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we're going to keep walking through some of these passages as we get back to First uh, Peter chapter three twenty one and Ben, I'm going to point something out to you here as far as how you're handling this text to uh, you know basically admonish you to take a harder look at that passage to see if it supports the interpretation that you've come up with or that you've been told. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We're going to take our first break. If you would like to email me, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, when we get back, we'll continue with the, the Chris Roseboro heresy trial, see whether or not I'm a heretic on the issue of baptism. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. 
When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. That was the theme of our 2008-2009 school year at St. Peter's Lutheran Day School in Plymouth, Michigan. We're planning for the next school year with an open house on March 22nd. For more details, please see our website, www.stpetersLutheranPlymouth.org, or call us at 734-453-0460. That's 734-453-0460. Avast there, Pirate Christian Radio listener. Have you visited the Pirate Christian Radio store yet? This is a place where you can stock up on Pirate Christian Radio gear. Don't be a stowaway on our ship. You can let your friends and neighbors know that you are a proud member of our crew by buying one of our Pirate Christian Radio t-shirts or coffee mugs. The best part is that all the proceeds help to keep our ship afloat so that we can take people's false doctrine and share the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Log on to piratechristianradio.com, click on the store link from our homepage, and do it today. You'll be glad that you did. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. We're in the middle of talking about baptism. It's my defense against the charge of heresy. And believe me, I understand, you know, why some of you evangelicals out there would be a little bit disconcerted and maybe even slightly uh, unnerved and and uncomfortable with the things I say about baptism because your pastors don't teach you what the Bible says on this matter. I know I'm being blunt there, but it's absolutely true. No passages in the Bible say that you are baptized in order to show the world that you've made a decision for Jesus. In fact, it's it. You have to you have to mangle God's word and read it in using eisegesis in order to even come close to that. No, from start to finish, baptism is something that God does to us. His word promises that. All right, I want to remind you, folks. Uh, Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio, which means we depend upon you in order to pay our bills. It is true. Um, if you would like to partner with us, you can do so uh, by going to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the donate button, or you can uh, send in a check, make it payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana. That's right. Our Pirate Cove is in the middle of uh, 
of a cornfield. <laughs> Fishers, Indiana, 46038 is the zip code. All right, moving along. Okay, Ben, we're walking through some passages here on our way back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, let me read to you a passage of Scripture from Paul from Roman, the book of Romans chapter 6. Okay, And I want you to see how Paul uses baptism here. Again, this is something done to us by God. Okay? Extranos, means of grace. Here we read. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul just went on to explain how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. First five chapters of Romans is just great stuff on the gospel. And he anticipates the question of his, you know, of his detractors and basically says, what should we do? Should we sin that grace may abound? He says, well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You're going, wait a second, Paul. When did we die to sin? When did we die to sin? Paul says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice here Paul's, Paul's argument. For those of you who would think that you can make the, the grace of Jesus Christ and turn it into a license for your sin, you can't do that. How could you? Because you died to sin. When? When you were baptized. When you were baptized, you were buried into Christ's death. Is that something that you can do? No, that's something that God has to do to you. So if we continue in Romans. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's some great promises there in Romans chapter 6 and some great explanations as to what happens in our baptism. So what do we know so far? In Acts chapter 2, we learned that we are baptized for the forgiveness of sins and that in our baptism we are buried with Christ and we are raised with Christ. We are, we are made dead to sin, if you would. Okay, these are all assure. These are all comforting and assuring words that we can point to. And again, coming back to my original statement, the statement I made was: if you're doubting your salvation, look to your baptism. Stop looking inside of yourself for the solution to your problem. You need something outside of you, something that God has done to you. Because if you think that you can somehow make yourself good enough, you can't. You're a sinner. All right? Okay, we're going to move along here. Okay, so we got that part. Let me uh, <clears throat> let me see what we got here. Oh, yeah. By the way, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Again, so we're clothed with Christ. Um. Moving along here, Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, In him, Jesus, you were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, 
but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So our hearts are circumcised, not by our own hands, not by the hands of the men baptizing us, but baptized. Uh, but th- this is a circumcision done by the hands of, of God, okay, in our baptism. So, all right, moving along here, I'm just kind of going through all this. All right, now we're, we're now back to First Peter, okay? And Ben, I want to I want to back you up in First Peter, and again apply the same rules that we always apply here at Fighting for the Faith. When you read a passage of Scripture, you read it in context. You quoted to me First Peter chapter three, verse twenty-one, which has an antecedent. Let me read verse twenty-one. It says, "Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of the bo- of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ." Now we've already shown that the clear passages in the Bible say that we are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. There's other passages where, you know, for instance, Paul's baptism uh, is for the washing away of sins. Um, we are buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We are clothed ourselves with Christ, or we are clothed with Christ, and our hearts are circumcised by Christ. Okay, the, these are all of what the clear passages say regarding baptism. And this is very powerful stuff that is there for the building up of our faith so that we can look outside of ourselves and see Christ in the cross, if you would. Okay, but let me come back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is only eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now stop. When we read this in context, First Peter chapter 3, you can't say that this is a waterless baptism or that there's somehow some dichotomy that's, that Peter is setting up here between water baptism and spirit baptism. Absolutely not. And the reason why is because Peter is making his appeal regarding baptism by looking to the type and shadow in the Old Testament, which was the flood. Well, by the way, was, uh, was the flood a waterless flood? Was it only a spiritual flood? Or was it a physical flood that involved a whole bunch of water all over the planet? Answer, it was a physical flood. Okay? So the flood is the kind of the type and shadow where baptism is the substance. It's the real thing. The flood is the symbol. Baptism is the reality. Okay? So Peter here is using the flood, the waters of the flood, to point us to our baptisms. And he says... Uh, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons in all, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that's the flood, baptism now saves you. Not a removal of dirt from the body. Now this is interesting, okay? When he says not a removal of dirt from the body, when we, that's the thing that we all see, okay? You take, a, you take a dirty kid, you get a washcloth, put some water on it, wipe their face, and voila, you've now removed dirt from their body, right? That's not a baptism, okay? 
Baptism is water and the word. It's not about removal of dirt. Otherwise, every time you take a shower, you're, ba- you're being baptized. Okay? In a sense, you are, but it's not has nothing to do with Christianity. Okay? So baptism sit now saves you. It's not a, a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, keep this in mind, okay? Grammatically speaking, the noun in the sentence is baptism. The verb is saves. The direct object is you. You could take this entire sentence and you can condense it down without any of the subordinate clauses and you can correctly say 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21 says baptism now saves you. That's what baptism does. And how could it not? Because the other passages of scripture say that we are buried with Christ in our baptism. Our sins are forgiven in our baptism. Our sins are washed away in our baptism. Our hearts are circumcised by Christ in our baptism. We are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. This is all done to us. That being the case, in those times of doubt when Satan comes and says, Do you think that you really are a Christian? How can God forgive what you've done? You're going to go to hell. There's no way. You might as well give up now. See, Satan comes to steal your faith. And in those times when Satan comes to steal your faith, you can take a cold bucket of baptismal water and just let it fly in his face. No, Satan. I have been baptized. This was done to me. Be gone with you. It's a great practical application of baptism. And I think that accords well with the scriptures. And also, see if I can find this real quick here. What I do with my Tertullian quote. (laughs) Tertullian, in his uh, work on baptism, actually says something very interesting. Listen to this. Tertullian, writing in the later part of the second century, says this, Happy is our sacrament of water, in that by washing away the sins of our early blindness, we are set free and admitted into eternal life. This is an early Christian church father. This is what he said about baptism. Okay, He says, But we little fishes, after the example of our ichthus, that's Jesus Christ, were born in water, nor have we safety in any other way by permanently abiding in this water so that that most monstrous creature who had no right to teach even sound doctor knew full well how to kill little fishes by taking them away from the water. Interesting. Tertullian talks about us as being little fishies, okay, being born in the waters of our baptism. And he goes on in this uh, in this book on baptism to explain how you know what what the bible teaches about baptism and you'll see early on early 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 christians and christianity believed the promises in the word of god regarding baptism it is not this american notion that this is something that you do to tell the world that you've made a decision for jesus now i know that some of you listening today believe that about baptism fine 
If you want to believe that, then you need to support it from God's word. Any of you out there who believe that and want to try this, show me the passages of scripture that say that baptism is you telling the world that you've made a decision for Jesus. Show me the verses in context and deal correctly then also with these other passages that show that in our baptism, our sins are washed away. Baptism is for the forgiveness of sins that we are buried with Christ, we are raised with Christ, that baptism saves. This is what the clear word of God says. I know you don't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe it. Believe me, this was one of those those doctrines that I really, really wrestled with, and I was so angry with those darn Lutherans. How dare they believe that you know, the baptism actually does something? It's offensive. You mean, I, I only understood the law. Baptism was something I did. It was an ordinance. I was keeping the law. I was being obedient. No. Baptism, you find out, was God's work. It has nothing to do with your obedience. It's all about God giving you gifts. It's all about God giving you forgiveness, washing away your sins, and doing things to you that could not be done by the hands of men, even if there was a billion hands of men there to try. None of them could accomplish it because the works done in baptism can only be done by God himself. All right. So there we have it. So, Ben, there's your challenge. Go back and reread 1 Peter chapter 3 in context and then take into consideration all these other passages. And then I would encourage you to have your friend listen to this program, the one who thinks I'm a heretic. And if she wants to take me on... I, really, she can. I mean, this is fighting for the faith is all about comparing what people say to the word of God. If she has a problem with what I've said and she thinks I'm heretical, then let her bring the texts. Let's discuss this based upon what does the Bible teach about baptism. And if I'm wrong, show me from the scripture. I will repent. I repented on the underwear issue. <laughs> all right. This next segment, we'll actually start this at this hour. And it'll bleed into the next hour. I'm going to be playing in context, and it's important that you hear it in context. Um, something that I think is important for every everybody, every listener to hear. I'm going to be playing, uh, replaying a radio interview with William Young, the author of The Shack. He's being interviewed by Pastor Kendall Adams on station KAYP in Burlington, Ohio. And Pastor Kendall Adams has done a fantastic job of interviewing William Young in a way to get him to speak forthrightly about his doctrine. And in this interview, you are going to hear, you are going to hear William Young denying the penal substitutionary atonement. You're also going to hear him wavering about particular things and playing emergent semantic games with other doctrines. And we'll chime in from time to time, but you need to hear this interview. And if you have friends and family that uh, think The Shack is the, is the greatest book since uh, the Bible was written, then uh, you, you need to get them to hear this program and you need to wrestle with them and bring God's word up and show them why what this guy is teaching and saying is wrong. It's bad enough that, that William Young has Jesus Christ being pretty much Aunt Jemima, okay? But uh, it's, it's a whole other thing, uh, not Jesus Christ, but God the Father being Aunt Jemima. It's a whole other thing altogether, all something completely different when, um, 
when he has um, Jesus Christ's death on the cross, meaning something completely different. And this guy, uh, Pastor Kendall Adams, does a great job of bringing up the important issues and getting William Young to say what he believes. Here we go. Without any further ado, here is Pastor Kendall Adams interviewing William Young, author of The Shack. And, and Wayne had a section on there about, um, you know, does the shack promote um, ultimate reconciliation? Okay. Ultimate reconciliation is code talk for universal salvation. Everybody's saved. You may not know it, but everybody's saved. The people may not know it, but they're already saved. Correct. And uh, on there he, he said... There was, there was no agenda for that in the book. So there's no agenda. And he said, but... In some earlier versions, because of your partiality at the time, with some aspects to to that idea, he couldn't really embrace it. And so you guys took time to take some of that out. Am I correct on that? Uh, yeah. The, uh, you know, I just think there's more ambiguity than, than uh, some people are comfortable with. I don't know for sure. Okay. Um, if God can figure out a way to save everybody and ultimately reconcile with everybody, I'd be for that, I, but I don't state a position that that's what, you know, I am certain will happen. But uh, Now, what is, in, in, uh, and how would you describe ultimate reconciliation? Well, for me, the, the focus is not on um, how it all works out in the end. To me, is I personally hold to the idea that everyone was included in what Jesus did on the cross, what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit accomplished on the cross. Okay, got to be careful here, okay? Those of you who have listened to Fighting for the Faith know that the Lutheran position on this is that it, we affirm with the Scriptures that Christ died for the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Christ died for everybody, but that by no means means that everybody's saved. Okay, got to be real careful here. But as you're going to see, William Young's theology isn't that well formed. Here we go. That we're all included in that. He didn't die for just a few of us, and um, and so that the path of salvation was absolutely accomplished. It's just that many of us aren't excited about relationship, or we don't, you know, we don't want to let go of our idols or our own self-centeredness, and uh, and potentially that means that. Somebody could, uh, could hold on to those things forever. Okay, stop. Got to be real careful here. I know what is said later in the interview, and so you need to stay, stick with me. I'm going to point something out here. William Young is a Pelagian, okay? And at best, he's semi-Pelagian. Both of them are bad, okay? And that's the idea that man isn't sinful by nature and completely dead in trespasses and sins. And therefore, man is capable of making a decision for Jesus. Okay? Absolutely, that's not what the Scriptures teach. We don't choose God. He chooses us. And he gives us repentance and faith through the means of grace. Okay? Through the Word of God. Through the Gospel. He, you're going to see as this develops, this is, this is really convoluted stuff here. We continue. And, um, but I don't, I don't see... You know, I believe in uh, the idea of uh, a hell that is um, real. It's a spiritual reality for me because I don't think um, it's just a it's just 
physical fire and all that kind of stuff. But I believe. Okay, he just said he just said that hell is a spiritual reality for him. Hell is a spiritual reality, and now he's he's uh, basically he, <laughs> he's basically spiritualizing hell, making it symbolic of something. I believe that that it's not separation. The the clearest passage in Scripture is that. Those who are in the lake of fire, as it were, are in the presence of the Lamb and His angels. And uh, so to me, it's not an issue of separation. It's, it's, it's an issue of relationship, whether they want it or not. And to me, fire is always a process of working out the stuff in our lives that, that actually damages us and damages relationships and damages people. So he's just taken fire, the fires of hell, and turned that, rather than being punishment, somehow God is using the fires of hell to work out the problems in the relationship that we have with him. Some kind of a weird purgatorial view, a refining fire view of hell. And that, and that that's part of what the wrath of God is, that everything he does is based in love. How it all works out, I don't know, and I'm not dogmatic on that at all. Do you mind just uh, fielding oh, no. a couple of questions from the book on page 182 then? Because uh, I know some point to page 182 um, where Mac is. And by the way, when I read the book, Paul, I was drawn in. I have kids. I've been camping. Uh, for yeah. the listeners who don't know the book, Mac, um, the main guy in the book, goes camping with his kids. And his, yep. his daughter is abducted and killed. And, Paul, I've been camping. I love my kids. My heart was ripped out as I read the first three chapters. I, I was like, I, that's a parent's worst nightmare. It just, I mean, it draws you in. And then when I get to the aspect of Mac getting the note from the father saying, Are you, must be an airplane in the background, right? It's uh, the baggage claim is just announcing that they're going to put our bags out. So, okay. yeah, I'll uh, right. walk away from that. And as soon as they stop that shouting in the background, I'll uh, walk back over and see if I can find my bag. But go ahead. Okay. There we go. And, and it really drew me in. When some people ask me what I think about it, uh, you know, I I hesitate a little bit because of, and I, and I know you fielded some of these questions before, about the Father. This isn't your traditional view of what Christians experience. I mean, I think a lot of the shock is portraying God, the Father. You know, when Mac opens the door on page 182, Mac decided to bang loudly to see what happened. But just as he raised his fist to do so, the door flew open, and he was looking directly into the face of a large, beaming African woman. I'll wait a second for the back. Good. I got uh, I just want to point out, the the interview took place while William Young was in an airport. They caught him at an airport, so he, you know that was the only time they could do the interview. Because you know now that he's they've sold you know five six million copies, he's been on the you know top of the New York Times bestseller list for you know weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. William Young is in demand as a uh, as a speaker. Okay, so there's churches flying William Young into their churches all over the country and the world. They want to hear what he has to say because this book touched their hearts. But as you're going to be hearing, you know, regarding his doctrine. You don't want this guy coming to your church. You don't want him teaching you nothing. You don't. Uh, we continue. I got my bag and I'm good. So I'm okay. Walking away. All right. And that's not on 182. Is is the section where Mackenzie and 
Jesus are talking about, you know, so do all roads lead to Papa. Oh, yeah, we'll get back to that. I, sorry about that. Okay. Um, I okay. thought I'd jump back into the, the storyline, Mac meeting God for the first time. The imagery. You said you wrote the book for your kids. Uh-huh. But why did you want them to see the father here in the book as um, a woman? Uh, for, for a number of different reasons. One, they're, uh, theologically, we know God is not male or female. He's not like 51% male and 49% female. He's spirit. And yeah, but God reveals himself as father. That's male. God the father. He doesn't reveal himself as God, the androgynous being. All maleness and femaleness are derived from God's character. We're made in the image of God, male and female. And there's lots of scripture that have female imagery to it and female names. So what I was doing was just simply tampering with some of our existing boxes that we put God in, which is, you know, Gandalf with an attitude or Zeus or Santa Claus or... You know, God is is no more a large black African-American woman than God is a large white grandfatherly Anglo-Saxon. And uh, so it was just, it was a way of saying, you know, let's let's think more broadly about this and put, and take God out of that narrow box. Imagery. Stop. Did you hear what he said? It's time to think more broadly about this and take God out of that narrow box. But God is the one who put himself in that box, who revealed himself as father, not as mother, but as father, not as a woman, but as a man, or with maleness. Notice what he did is he took some ideas and then he extrapolated them out using his reasoning to come to the conclusions that he drew, because we need to think broader and wider. And somehow we need to get God out of the mailbox. But God's word reveals him in male terms. He, God, God the Father. So when you hear somebody talk about, oh, we need to get God out of the box, and we need to think broader and reimagine, and, and you know, well, they, these things are, it, it doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It matters a whole heck of a lot. We're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we're going to continue with our interview uh, replaying the interview with uh, William Young, and uh, when we get back, when we're done with that, we'll actually play our interview with Dr. Adam Francisco on uh, Luther's response to Islam, uh, the essay that he wrote in Theologia et Apologia, which is Pirate Christian Radio's book of the month. Definitely a book you want to consider. All right, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far in today's program, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith dot com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air. 
Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. This month's Pirate Christian Radio Book of the Month for March is Theologia et Apologia. This important work gathers together 18 essays written by some of today's top biblical and Reformation scholars, including Michael Horton, Adam Francisco, Angus Manuge, John Warwick Montgomery, Craig Parton, Kim Riddlebarger, and R.C. Sproul. Collectively, the essays in this book teach and defend biblical theology, especially the theology restored to the church during the time of the Reformation. They address topics including the case for biblical inerrancy, a Christian critique in response to Islam, repentance, a defense of sola scriptura, and much, much more. This little-known theological treasure is a welcome addition to the library of any thinking Christian. You can purchase Theologia et Apologia at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the store link. The book only costs $38 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to continue to bring Pirate Christian Radio to you. So visit piratechristianradio.com and purchase your copy today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We're in the middle of listening to uh, a radio interview with William Young, the author of The Shack. Kid you not, in just a couple of minutes, you're going to hear him denying the penal substitutionary atonement. What is the penal substitutionary atonement? Well, it's what the Bible teaches, that Jesus was punished for our transgressions. He was our substitute. He got what we deserved. And if you don't believe me that that's what the Bible teaches, let me read to you a passage from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to compare what you hear here in the Bible to what William Young is about to say. Who has believed what he has heard from us and who to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his off- who sh- he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Okay, that's the first eleven verses of Isaiah chapter fifty-three that so clearly teaches that Jesus Christ was crushed, afflicted, smitten by God for our iniquities, our sins. He was being punished for us in our stead. He was our substitute, and it was penal. We continue. Narrow box. Imagery is always going to be inadequate. At some point, C.S. Lewis says that God is male and female and more and uh so you know whether you have male imagery or female imagery it's going to be inadequate in the storyline mackenzie's got such an issue with his father that god finds a way to reach around that eventually he still has to deal with the fatherhood of god and uh and oftentimes folks that are a little upset with the initial uh imagery don't bring up the fact that mackenzie still has to deal with um what elements of the fatherhood of God are um, that he is stuck about as well? I mean, definitely, you've probably been asked that questions many that question many times uh, about the, the imagery, and you know, God is always. I mean, hundreds of times, you know, you have He's called the Father, and I know you don't disagree sure. with that, not at all. But personal names as Father. Um, you know, there's a movement today of wanting to sing hymns and include our Mother God or praying, our, you know, to Mother God. All right, listen carefully to this and listen to William Young's answer. Does this lend to that idea, you know, you can call God Mother? Does it lend lend itself to that? Well, uh, in a way, you could say that it does. I'm, I'm not too worried about that. There is the motherhood of God. There is the God that nourishes us. There is the God who is El Shaddai, the breasted one. Okay, did you hear that? It doesn't bother him of this whole motherhood of God stuff. Yet there, this motherhood stuff, the motherhood, the, the female deities, all pagan. Nowhere in any of the Christian scriptures, nowhere in the Old Testament or New Testament, do we get this concept of God mother. So, but, you know, I don't want to denigrate at all the fatherhood. It's such a central image, and it's, and it's there for a reason. So I'm not for substituting one for the other as if they're the exact same thing, because they're not. The imagery designates the different elements of relationship and different qualities of the character of God. So, you know, I am, I'm not for one of these that are just going to go to a unisex version of God. I think... Um, the reason God is characterized the way he is, is significant. So um, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I, we'd probably disagree over the El Shaddai thing, but uh, 
because it's always translated Almighty God, God Almighty. But nah. that's well, actually, Lord of Hosts, Elohim, the Creator God, um, Shad, the Hebrew word for breast, and uh, and that's. I guess some theologians will disagree with other theologians about that, but it's it's fairly common uh, translation for it. You must be close to a baggage claim again, right? Uh, I am. I am walking outside so okay. that that noise isn't in the background. All right, thanks. There you go. Fa- the Father's never represented or seen in Scripture. No one has ever seen the Father. Jesus said, First Timothy says. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But he's, he's represented with the eyes and a hand. The eye of a father uh, goes to and fro throughout the world. Uh, the nostril in Psalms chapter two, uh, God as a, as a um, a man who in Ezekiel is walking along the side of the road. He is manifested as a man in that, and, and uh, he finds a little girl that's been thrown away uh, in the ditch who has just been born. And he, as a man, he takes that little girl into his home, raises her, falls in love with her, ends up marrying her, and then she becomes uh, someone who chases after other men. It's the story of God the Father in Israel. So, you know, I think God... Yeah, i got to stop there. The anthropomorphisms used to describe our relationship to God, and in this particular case, Israel's uh, rejection and harlotry as far as chasing after other idols, these anthropomorphisms don't, they don't tell us, you know, regard, it's not an issue of sex. The issue is what's being taught in there, and God is using these to demonstrate or a bigger issue and to get people to understand that they're, lack of faith, their disobedience, and their idolatries, it, God views it a particular way, and it, 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 it demonstrates a, uh, the relationship to be a particular way. Huh. But notice, even in the one that he pointed out, God doesn't describe himself as a mother who's sick to death over the loss of a child. No, it's a male character again. God reveals himself as father. God is is represented in imagery in terms of uh, being a man okay. so in got, Scripture. So you got Matt, he meets God at the shack, and they, they spend this time together. Uh, God's going to heal, help heal Mac's sadness and uh, some things that he has wrestled with for many years. You know, you're wanting to portray God to your kids the way you see God, kind of teach them basically your theology in a story form. I guess the question that I've had as I read it, is if we do represent God and we put words in God's mouth, you know, that God says this, and that people are reading Scripture and they're like, for instance, here's a question on page 120 where God says, you know, I don't, I don't punish sin. Sin is its own punishment. You know, this is when Mac um, is having a hard time with his view of God, pouring out wrath, etc. But then when it says, Mackenzie, I don't need to punish people for sin. I guess when people read the scripture, my question is, doesn't God, hasn't God, and doesn't he punish sin? All right, got to listen carefully here. We're kind of at the crux of the interview at this point. Listen very carefully. Some of it is semantic. We're dealing with the uh, concept of the wrath of God. And here's an underlying question. Do you believe that God does anything that is not motivated by love? 
Well, I think at Scripture we have wrath, we have justice, we have mercy. We okay, got to stop there. <clears throat> our, our, our interviewer here, you got to be careful. William Young has just answered rabbinically. He answered a question with a question. Well, do you think that God doesn't, you know, ever does anything you know, that's not motivated by love? My answer to the question would have been pretty simple. I can't psychologize God. I cannot claim that I know God's motivation for everything or anything unless he tells me what his motivation is. The question that is important is not my feelings, not our rationalizations, but uh, I would basically say, William Young, show me a passage of Scripture that says that everything that God does is motivated by love. Now, maybe it is. But do I have a clear word from God that says everything I do is motivated from love? We know that God is just and he is loving. When he is punishing sin, when he is sending Satan and his angels and unbelievers into the fires of hell, is his motivation love for them? The answer to that question is, I have no idea what his motivation is because I would need a clear word from God to tell me what his motivation is. Let's continue. You do have love. Do you believe that God does anything that is not motivated by love? Because love is his ontological character, it's his being. Okay, He he just slipped into philosophy there. God's ontological character is love, and that's his being. Where does it say in Scripture that God ontologically is love? Got to be careful here. Got to be careful. This is slippery stuff. Slippery, slippery. But we continue. Justice is an activity of God. Uh, Wrath is an activity of God. So notice what he did. Love is ontological. Justice is an activity. Do we have a clear word from God that distinguishes these categories in the way he's describing it? So you do believe, though, that he does punish sin? I I believe in the wrath of God, absolutely. But but the wrath of God is is always couched. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not... Listen to what he just quoted. The wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men against the men. It's against everything that is damaging them, hurting them, causing them to sin against each other. Everything that is contrary to his nature. Okay, going to back this up. You've got to hear this. Watch what he's doing. He's separating men's unrighteousness from the men themselves. I'm going to back it up so you're going to hear a little bit of ditto because you've got to hear this in context. I believe in the wrath of God, absolutely. But but the wrath of God is is always couched. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not against the men. It's against everything that is damaging them, hurting them, causing them to sin against each other, everything that is contrary to his nature. And uh, but, so... Keep in mind, men are the ones who are committing these sins. God's not going to send men's unrighteous deeds to hell. He's going to actually send men there. 
A difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Remember that. I, I absolutely believe in the wrath of God, yes. I believe it's motivated by love. But this love also, in justice, you quoted, you know, you mentioned uh, the lake of fire, etc. It does say that there is torment day and night, so there is punishment. Torment. Yeah, and it, and it is in the presence of the Lamb. Well, here's my question. So if God yeah. doesn't punish sin... You know, this little thing he keeps pointing to a passage in the book of Revelation. says, all this torment's going, yeah, but it's in the presence of God. Does that really matter? What is the cross then? Because if Jesus took our punishment on the cross, if he died for our sins, he was taking our punishment. If God doesn't punish sin, it seems like that demeans the whole concept of the cross. Okay. Here we are. This is it. Listen carefully. Oh, not at all. The, the cross is, is the plan of God from before the foundation of the world to, to redeem us back from being lost, being in the grip of our sin and lostness and idolatry and everything else. It's absolutely central. There's no hope for any human being, let alone the human race, apart from the cross. But... He doesn't believe that Jesus Christ was punished for us on the cross. Listen. So you do believe that Christ was punished then for our sin? I believe that that Christ became sin for us. I mean that he he was a sacrifice, that he p- was punished. He took punished our, by who? The Father. Why why would the Father punish his son? Oh boy. <laughs> Yet this guy, oh man, uh, William. Just keep in mind, William Young. Uh, there's millions of Christians around the country who think this guy is uh, the next Paul Bunyan, the next C.S. Lewis, because sin demanded justice. It, it demanded. Oh, it, but it, but where was Father when the Son was on the cross? doesn't matter that's that's absolutely irrelevant to the point as to whether or not Jesus was punished for our sins and that whether or not God's wrath was upon him in your book when it says um, Mac had a problem with my God my God why have you forsaken me and God basically says Mac I never left him that's right when Jesus said why have you forsaken me it He's, yeah, he's quoting, he's also quoting and doing the cry of David in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, that's totally reconciled within the Psalms. And the next thing that he says, even though that's exactly what he feels for the first time as a human being, who is born of the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, for the first time, uh, Jesus was, time, he doesn't sense the presence of the Father. And in that, he cries out. But Paul the Apostle comes up later, and Jesus first says, but into your hands I commit my spirit. So he's still saying, you're here. And Paul says, where was God the Father? For God the Father, 2 Corinthians 5.19, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. So where was God the Father? And where did reconciliation happen? I believe it happened on the cross. And it says that God the Father was in his Son reconciling the world to himself. Yeah, many see that as Christ being the agency of our reconciliation. But that when, you know, that Christ was 
taking the wrath of God upon him, I, I take it that you wouldn't you wouldn't agree that the cross was a place of punishment for our sin. No, I don't. I am not a penal substitution reformation. But isn't that the heart of? The- hmm. Okay, outright denies the penal substitutionary atonement. Outright denies it. But isn't that the heart of the gospel? Is that the heart of the gospel? No. The heart of the gospel is that we are are so pursued. The heart of the gospel is Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons. That everything is by, for, and through Jesus. And when Jesus dies, all die. But all the sac- all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they they were for the sins of the person. Yep, they were. You're right. As they laid the hand on the lamb, or or the Passover, you know, the lamb's blood was shed and put on the doorpost. So when the death angel came, it passed over. That and, way, and that, I understand. Yeah. So I'm not saying that I don't uh, agree with some sense of substitutionary atonement. But you disagree but it's with way broader than that. But if you reject the penal substitution that Christ died as a penalty for our sins, it seems like that is the that is the Christian faith. I don't know if you're aware, but that's a huge debate that's going on in theology right now within the evangelical community. It's, okay, stop. That is a lame argument. That is a lame argument. It's a smokescreen and a non sequitur. Doesn't matter if it, there's a debate. Doesn't matter. There was a time in Christian history when the doctrine of the Trinity was debated, and the controversy was between the, the Trinitarians and the Arians. Just because there was a debate doesn't mean that God wasn't a Trinity at some point, and that maybe God decided to change into the Arian view of God. No. It just means that there was an error that crept into the church, a heresy that crept into the church that caused the debate. The scripture is clear. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For I passed on of that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. William Young is denying literally the central tenet of the Christian faith, the very heart of the matter of what the cross was all about. It is, and I, and I, and I would say everything hangs on that. I mean, there's so many scriptures that Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, and, I, and, I, and I agree with that. Yeah, you just redefined it so it has nothing to do with penal substitution. I, he became sin no, for us. He died for our sins. Romans says the Father delivered him over for our sin. If he didn't, if he wasn't delivered for my sin, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with any of those passages at all. You've just redefined them so they don't mean that Christ actually died for our sins. It's just that how do we understand it and how do we define what exactly took place? And I'm saying that there is a huge amount of disagreement among theologians. That doesn't matter. What matters is what does God's word say and teach in context? Okay. About what all that means. Okay. And and so there is, you know, a degree of ambiguity there. No, there isn't. It's because clear as a bell. And uh, but I'm saying everything that happens there is the purpose of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that purpose is 
Our redemption is salvation is reconciliation. And I don't see um, that it's necessary to have the Father uh, punish in that sense the Son. Yeah, we could. This is. I think this is. Oh man. I don't see. I don't see that it's necessary. Who cares what you think? What does the Scripture say? I think Pastor Kendall Adams is doing a fine job of bringing in the passages. And what is what is William Young doing? He's doing what every good liberal does. Oh, I believe that. I, but what you got to understand, it all depends on how you define it, and maybe how we can nuance it, and how we can shade it, and and you know, and so that we can get rid of that pesky meaning. This is an important issue. Which, by the way, proves what Scripture says. That the cross is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. It's an offense. And William Young claims to be within Christianity, and he's offended by the cross. And the fact that God would punish Jesus Christ in our place. If you're offended by the cross of Christ... And what the Bible clearly says Jesus was doing and what was being done to him on the cross? Are you even really a Christian? Um, On page 225, in Jesus, I've forgiven all humans for their sin against me. Which is absolutely biblical. Okay, now the question is, in, in Acts, you have people, you have Paul and Peter and others preaching to other people to believe in Jesus. Yep. This is getting now. This is t- turning a little bit now into this universalism thing. I mean, if Christ died for the sins of everybody and everybody's already saved, then why why were the apostles out there being martyred for preaching the gospel and calling people to repent and believe the gospel and to trust in Christ and to turn from pagan idols and and to, you know, sure. And everyone who believes in Him receives. Forgiveness of sins. My question is, do you believe that a person before death must personally believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God in order to have eternal life, in order to be with the Father? Absolutely. Absolutely. You do? Okay. Okay, so he believes that. Well, how does he define it? Absolutely. So if they're already forgiven, how is it that uh, it sounds like in Acts... We preach the gospel so that people may believe and have sins forgiven. Explain that. But again, how about, you know, Second Timothy 4.14 that says, here's a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, especially of believers. But, well, first, or, let's... If I, let's if I be lifted up, I'll drag all men to myself. I mean... But you don't believe all men will be saved, right? I believe that everyone was included in the finished work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit upon the cross. I mean, do you believe everyone... The Muslim who rejects Christ, who doesn't believe he's the Son of God, will they be ultimately saved? I don't know. (sighs) Do I need to comment on that? I don't know that. But I tell you what, the salvation... uh, Let me ask you this question. What saves us? Our ability to choose what Christ did or what Christ did? what Christ did, and if you know your Bible, then you know that men do not have the ability to choose God. Read John chapter 6. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
No one can come to me unless the Father enables him. We're not born of natural descent or of a human decision, but born of God. So this is kind of a false category here that you're going to hear, but I'm going to play this out so you can kind of hear the, the semi-Pelagian or Pelagian view that's, that's going on here. He's denied penal substitutionary atonement. Well, wait till you hear some of this stuff. Well, Scripture says if I don't believe in him, I stand judged already. And That's right. That's what John says. And I understand that, and I and I agree with that. I'm saying you have to. Yeah, but how do you define it, William? To believe, you mean you don't know whether a Muslim who dies rejecting Christ will be saved? No. What I'm saying is, is that salvation was accomplished on the cross once for all. He died once for all. You're avoiding the question, William Young. This is subterfuge. And it was finished. So it's not the issue of salvation that prevents people from eternal life. It's the issue of, of making a choice to be in relationship or not. Stop. No, it's not. We cannot choose God. It is not a matter of whether or not we make a decision to have relationship with Papa. Do they have, they have, yeah, and it, they have to believe it, in him to have eternal life? Would you agree? Absolutely. This side of death. Absolutely, but yeah, absolutely. But did you hear that? Absolutely, I believe that. Absolutely, but yeah, but but here's the deal: salvation is accomplished by what he did, not by even our choice to believe it. So you mean after, if they don't believe in this life, it sounds like you're saying they can be ultimately saved. They they can. I don't. I don't know. Okay. I don't know that, and I don't think anybody knows that. And this is like nailing jello to the wall, man. And uh, but I but my point about the salvation issue is, it is what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit accomplish in Christ that saves anyone. It's not our ability to choose that. It's not my ability to choose that saves me. It's what God has done sovereignly in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the cross. Uh, both true and false at the same time. He's right, but he's wrong. So it's not the issue of salvation. But Christians are burdened. It's the issue of relationship. Well, we're burdened to share the gospel with the lost. I mean, thankfully, Absolutely. I mean... That's what that's what the Second Corinthians passage is all about. Yeah, yes, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. So now, as ambassadors of Christ, as if you're pleading with the very words of God, be reconciled to him. Notice that uh, Pastor Kendall Adams here, just he knows this is wrong. He knows that it's off, and he's having a hard time smoking William Young out. He's got it's like getting a possum, you know, up a tree, you know, trying to figure out how to get him to come down so he can bite his neck off. Um, telling you here, you know, he's right. There's you know, there's something seriously wrong here, and he's trying to help us get a radar fix on it. And William Young is doing a fantastic job of putting on his Klingon cloaking device to try to hide the false doctrine that he's holding on to because he's completely changed the definitions, reworked the categories, and it's not playing out the way it would in, in normal, sound biblical doctrine. We continue. He's reconciled himself to you. He's opened up the huge door. There's only open gates in the New Jerusalem. So be reconciled to him. Yes, this is the good news that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have accomplished our salvation on the cross. We've all been included. I think the confusion, though, is on like 182, and you mentioned that earlier, and we probably should get back to it before we have to go. You know, Max talking to Jesus, and um, 
you know the passage well, you wrote it, is, is that what it means to be a Christian? And it sounded kind of stupid, and who said anything about being Christian? Jesus said, I'm not a Christian. And then Max says, I suppose you're not. And they arrived at the door of the workshop. Again, Jesus stopped. Those who love me come from every system that exists. They were Buddhists, Mormons, Baptists, etc. I have no desire to make them Christian. Okay, stop. Pastor Adams was reading directly from the shack. And in the shack, Jesus is supposedly saying to Mac, I have no desire to make these people Christian. I know you said on another show that you originally wrote they are Buddhist, Mormons, Muslims. That's what you originally had written. Well, that's because I'm a, I'm a third culture kid. I'm not just an American or a Canadian. This is a lame answer here. Folks, everybody who's anybody who has half a brain knows that a Muslim is somebody who says... Allah, there is no God but Allah, there's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. A Buddhist is somebody who follows the teachings of Buddha, the Eightfold Path. These are religious positions. These are, this is not like saying I'm a Canadian or, my, or I'm an American. And in the U.S. or in the West, we don't realize that people can be Muslim Christians or Buddhist Christians because in the world, the rest of the world, the designation of Buddhist or Muslim just indicates ethnicity. It doesn't indicate belief system. Okay. Oh come on. Okay, but you, you would a uh, you uh, a Muslim. You were you you are a Canadian, and you know what people believe here in the United States. Muslim who is a practicing Muslim rejects that Jesus is God incarnate, which you do believe, and Absolutely. the Muslim rejects that Jesus is the Son of God. In order for them to have eternal life, to be in a relationship with the Father, they must. They, would you they agree? Have to, they they must, have to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, the personhood of Christ. They have to enter into relationship. Yes, all of that's true. So, I totally agree. He says that one thing. He's talking at both sides of his mouth. It's very interesting. So, what do you mean by he has no desire to make them Christian? Because the the term Christian is the big C bomb in the world. It's Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew, and he never used the term Christian. And it was a designation that was given sometime after he ascended. He oh, this is ridiculous. Give me a break. Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew. <sighs> he didn't come to create a new religion to compete with the existing religions. He didn't come and say, okay, we're going to establish a new one. And we're going to against Islam. And and there is a Christian religion that God is as opposed to as every other religion. The one that says that, you know, you have this gap between you and God, and now you need to, through the observance of certain rituals or rules or whatever, find your way to God. That is that is not the truth. I agree. That's uh, legalism. And he came to introduce relationship that is a violation of all religions. And, if, you know, when people say Paul... He came to seek and save the lost. He came to fulfill the law. He came to die in my place. Are you a Christian? I say, well, you know, would you tell me what one is? And I'll tell you if I'm one of those, because I don't mind being one of those, if we're on the same page. But in many parts of the world, it doesn't mean anything that we would say is what a Christian is. You know, I'm, I'm a Canadian, not a Republican. And for a lot of people... Christian and Republican are synonymous. 
Ah, subterfuge. Completely speaking out of... Yeah, this guy... No wonder the emergents like him so much. No wonder. I'll put a link up to the entire uh, interview so that you can review it more. But that's all we're going to do on today's program with that particular interview. And if that doesn't get the uh, hair on the back of your neck to stand up and make you realize, whoa, we're in trouble here. This guy's got some serious theological and doctrinal problems then I don't know what will do it. I mean, that's in his own words, denying the penal substitutionary atonement and just uh, talking out of both sides of his mouth. Oh, I absolutely believe this, but it all depends on how you define it. And you got to, you know, and, there, and people are debating it and you know, whatever. All right. Earlier today, I had the, uh, I had the supreme, supreme pleasure and honor of interviewing Dr. Adam Francisco. Dr. Francisco is one of the professors at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He got his Ph.D. from Oxford University, and the the emphasis of his uh, doctoral dissertation had to do with uh, Lutheranism and Islam. And uh, he is one of the editors of Pirate Christian Radio's book of the month, Theologia et Apologia. And um, I interviewed him regarding the book as well as his essay. And at the tail end of this interview, which runs literally exactly 40 minutes long, uh, we we talk about uh, whether you know his view on that new thing that's going on, the common wor- word between us that was put out by Yale regarding supposedly the common ground that Christians have with Muslims. And he answers the question straight up as to whether or not Christians... And Muslims worship the same God. This is a great interview, and hopefully it'll also give you an idea of just the quality of essays that are in our book of the month, the uh, Theologia et Apologia. And without any further ado, let me go ahead and play the interview of, uh, with me and Dr. Adam Francisco discussing Islam. Dr. Francisco, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith and uh, discussing the book that you helped edit, Theologia et Apologia. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this uh, book and the occasion for its publication? Well, it's a what, what the Germans would call a festschrift, uh, you know, a, fest, a festive writing. Um, for it, it has several essays, I mean, over a dozen essays, all written in honor of uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt out of Concordia University, Irvine, on the occasion of his 61st, uh, 65th birthday. Very nice. And uh, you and uh, Corey Moss and Steve Mueller are the ones who compiled this? Yeah, Corey and uh, Steve, um, I usually call him doctor because he was my teacher, but uh, they're both out there on the faculty there at Irvine, whereas I'm out at Fort Wayne. But uh, that's where I studied, though, was in Irvine. So. Well, <laughs> well, you and I have something in common. Um, okay, so Luther's critique of uh, of in response to Islam is your essay. There's 18 other, actually, there's a total of 18 essays in here. And uh, was it difficult twisting everyone's arm to make a contribution to this book? No, no. You know, if anybody who knows Dr. Rosenblatt knows how influential uh, he is, and um, and they know, you know, Generally speaking, what a good guy he is. So it was very easy to get people to write. There were some whose schedules wouldn't allow it, but um, most people immediately responded, saying, "Absolutely." So. Okay. Well, great. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fantastic book, and uh, we're offering it actually here at uh, Pirate Christian Radio as the uh, March book of the month. I not a lot of people know about it, and uh, I was not able to attend. Uh, you know when it was presented to him, I, you weren't either. 
No, I was. I had tickets and everything was sitting in the airport, and I was in, in New York at the time. I think it was in May or April that uh, the presentation was to take place, and we had some unusual snowstorm hit us in New York, and I got snowed in. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm looking at my copy here. I have an autographed copy. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Rod, Rod uh, or autographed it? or Yeah, Rod, okay. uh, Rod autographed it. Uh, they, I think the, the, the day after was uh, it was presented on a Saturday night, if I'm not mistaken, or Friday or Saturday night, and the day after um, one of the parishioners at our church uh, you know, gave me a copy of it. He thought that I would enjoy it, and actually it's a fantastic book, and the essays in it are, are spectacular. Now, your expertise seems to be in Islam. Um, how, how did you be, what is your interest in Islam, and how did you begin studying this topic? Well, um, when I was at Irvine in the uh, late 90s, uh, I think it was around 1999, maybe 2000, I started, I was interested in Luther studies and, you know, Reformation history and was trying to find something that, you know, we didn't, scholars don't know a whole lot about or at least something that was, um, hadn't been beaten to death, let's put it that way. And I, you know, I started Looking at the ref- the history of the Reformation, I noticed that there was a, a, a major interplay between the Islamic world and, and European civilization. At, in the 16th century, the Ottoman Turks you know, were, were making great strides in advancing their the borders of their empire way into Hungary at, in Luther's day and age. And I thought, well, there must be Luther must have said something on this. And certainly, I mean. Anybody who's looked at Luther's writings in the American edition knows he wrote several works on the Turks, but I didn't know about that um, as an undergraduate. Um, But I started looking into Luther's view of the Turkish wars and then noticed that he was, you know, he was also paying attention to, uh, or at least trying to, to understand the ideology behind the expansion of the Ottoman Empire. And so he started dabbling in what we might call Islamic studies. And there's a footnote, actually, in one of the volumes of Luther's works that has a, 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 it's actually an erroneous comment that says Luther at one point translated the Quran. And it was that footnote um, that got me really interested in this topic. And when I was done with my uh, BA at Irvine, I had to stick around for another year while my wife finished up her degree. And I uh, got into the master's program there. And Dr. Rosenblatt was my my supervisor, and I wrote a a, a thesis on Luther and apologetics, and had a whole chapter on Luther's view of Islam. Uh, but going back to that footnote, uh, it says that Luther translated the Quran, and then I found out that he actually didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he did do was translated an old medieval you know, apologetic work on on uh, Islam, and he translated that into German. And he did in 1543, just before he dies. Uh, he actually was a major patron for the publication of a Latin translation of the Quran that he he had not done, and he actually wrote a preface to it. So, in, as it turns out, um, that was 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. and I you know, finished up the degree there in Irvine and was headed to St. Louis uh, to attend seminary. And Dr. Rosenblatt had put a bug in my ear, so to speak, that I might want to consider doing a Ph.D. somewhere down the road, and he told me that I should go ahead and just apply and see what happens. And um, I had 
didn't think that there'd be any chance that I'd be able to get into a PhD program. And um, I don't know, it certainly wasn't my abilities, but I think probably because, uh, you know, Islam all of a sudden became really relevant in September of 2001. Right. Um, I was accepted uh, to do a, a PhD out at University of Oxford. and uh, But it all started with under Dr. Rosenblatt's supervision. Excellent. Well, coming back to your essay then. Um, so, uh, Luther, this is uh, about the time the printing press is taking off and the 95 Theses spread across Europe like wildfire. But uh, what, was his inter- what was his ability to uh, take a look at the Quran and, and examine it and uh, develop an apologetic? And what was, his apo- you know, what was his approach? Did it progress over time? Did he have ready, ready access to the Quran? You say he was a patron for its uh, translation toward the end of his life. But early on, uh, what, what formed the basis? of his opinions regarding Islam. Yeah, well, early on, he, when he, he first starts writing or devoting his writings, to, some of his writings, to the problem of the Ottoman um, expansion um, in you know, 1528, 1529. And in those writings, he's primarily interested in, in um, explaining to European, in particular German Christians, um, that they can still be a good Christian um, and go off to to war, so long as they see themselves not as a participant in the crusade or some sort of holy war, but simply as a citizen of the civil realm uh, fighting a just war against the unjust incursion of this Islamic empire into southeastern and almost into central Europe. Um, but in those writings that are more political, uh, I guess you might say political, um, he does mention a bit about the Turkish ideology, and the first one he writes on war against the Turk, which is available in English. He has a you know couple page, um, uh, not a diatribe, maybe you might say a um, a foray into explaining Islamic theology, and he mentions that he does not have he's he's looked. But he's not able to find a copy of the Quran translated into to Latin or German. Uh, and he says, but he does have some medieval uh, writings by you know, Dominican missionaries who had spent time in the Muslim world who who do quote the Quran. So, on the basis of those quotations, he's able to to draw up a general view of of the Islamic worldview. But he admits in the beginning that he's not going to say a whole lot. He's not going to make a whole lot of judgments. Because he's he's not convinced that these Catholic writers from the 13th and 14th centuries had fairly represented Islam, which is this is a really unusual aspect to Luther. Is he's when he first approaches Islam, he's he's cautious. Uh-huh. He's convinced that the, the Catholics um, had demonized Islam, um, and so he's, he's very cautious with in his use of his sources. But uh, around. 1542 or so, he you know he writes a preface to this translation of this apologetic work, where he explains how for for decades he had looked for a copy of the Quran, and finally on Shrove Tuesday uh, of 1542, a Latin translation uh, was received in Wittenberg, and he says once he read that, it confirmed that all these polemical writings from the Middle Ages by you know, Christian missionaries were in fact true. Mm-hmm. And so then he goes about translating this this apologetic work and then uh, sponsoring a translation of a Latin translation of the Quran 
um, for several reasons. The first was he thought that rather than ignoring Islam and just hoping it would go away, he thought it was absolutely essential that everybody knew the ideology that was fueling the expansion of the Ottoman Empire into Europe. Um, and secondly, he will he'll write a letter actually where he encourages um, uh, that the you know, his, the, his, the clergy in Germany to to read the Quran to become very well acquainted with it and even to to preach on Islam from the pulpit mm-hmm. uh, so that the laity would not uh, first of all they would be convinced that Islam was a malignant threat but secondly so they would not be tempted to to think of Islam as just a sort of another you know side of the coin of a monotheistic religion but rather Luther wanted them to inculcate the the idea, you might say, the fact that Islam is an entirely different religion than than Christianity. Okay, uh, so in his, help us out here. In, you know, I mean, you have the uh, Ottoman Turks. It seems like every summer um, it was war season there in, in in Germany, defending themselves against the Ottoman Turks for a while. Um, is it the same ideology that uh, animated the Ottoman Turks that animates uh, Al Qaeda and groups like them, or is there a distinct difference as far as what uh, you know the the reasoning and and motivation for what they did? Uh, it's generally it is motiv- it's fueled by the same thing uh but because you know the our the historical and geopolitical circumstances are very different it works out differently back in the 16th century and really any time before the 17th century um muslim empires were according to islamic law to continuously um uh, engage in attempts at expanding the borders of islam uh, before Muhammad died, according to Islamic tradition, he he told the people in the Arabian Peninsula that the jihad, the jihad, the struggle to advance the cause of Islam through physical exertion of force and p- political persuasion, uh, was perpetual. It would remain until the day of judgment. He says, and and in Islamic law, uh, it throughout you know throughout the centuries there's this idea that muslim empires are not to be static they're constantly to be on the move uh to make territorial gains for islam and the way it worked out through the centuries was differently in every location but generally speaking each year at least one time a year the emperor of the muslim empires or the caliph as he was called or the vice regent of of allah or vice regent of Muhammad was to call at least once a year a jihad, uh, in other words, an attack outside the borders of the Islamic empires. Now, that you know that happens throughout the centuries through Luther's day until 1683. Uh, September 11th, actually, of 1683 is really the last gasp of the Ottoman Empire in their attempts to to really take over Europe. They're they're definitively turned back at Vienna in 1683. And from that time forward, through the 17th, 18th, 19th, and into the 20th century, the Muslim, the Ottoman Empire, and other Muslim empires were in a, a slow, steady state of decline. They didn't have the money or the political clout to really to wage any effective jihads on on non-Muslim countries. Uh, primarily, there are several reasons for this. One, the biggest reason is because the center of the world, the economic center of the world, shifted out of the Atl- or the Mediterranean Sea, you know, in Luther's day and following, and into the Atlantic. And the Ottomans just simply did not have access to that. Huh. Um, 
nowadays, you know, since 1924, just after World War One, when uh, the Ottoman Empire collapsed and Ataturk, Kemal Ataturk, declared that the caliphate was no longer extant, uh, the Muslim world has been attempting since 1924 to find a new caliph, a new central authority for the Muslim world. They, there are many. Uh, claimants to this this title, but no, there's no agreed upon caliph, and so this causes a problem for the Muslim world because it means there's no normative legislative body or person you know in charge of this legislative body, and it also means that there's no one to call a legitimate jihad. Mm-hmm. So, so Al Qaeda or Osama bin Laden in particular, he's out of step with Islamic tradition when he calls for jihad because he's not a caliph, he's not the central authority in the Muslim world. But the problem is there is no caliph. And so Osama bin Laden would defend himself by saying that what he's trying to do is restore the caliphate so that Islam could get to, could to, uh, resurrect itself into, and the Muslim world could, could find itself unified again. And so really what bin Laden and al-Qaeda and other Islamist groups are after is really uh, not progress by any means, but really they're trying to reinstate or resurrect the, the, the bygone era of the Muslim empires. For them, that's, that's true Islam. In fact, they would say that if the quintessential or, or archetypal Islamic state existed in the 7th and 8th centuries, and that's really what they're, they attempt, are attempting to, to copy. Interesting. All right, talking about the nature of Islam itself, uh, yeah, your article, your essay, actually makes it clear that you know, Luther didn't have a lot of positive things to say about Islam, um, you know, basically saying that it's from the devil. But he, you, there's a quote in your, uh, in your essay that I found rather interesting, and, and here's what you said. It says, while Luther castigated Islam as an abomination from hell... He also noted its appeal. Its doctrine of works righteousness was thoroughly coherent, even more so than Rome, and its ideology manifested on the battlefield in the mosque and elsewhere was the theology of glory par excellence. Um, What exactly are you getting at there, and and what's the nature of Islam, and why is it the theology of glory par excellence? Yeah, oh, well, there's a lot there. Um, First of all, in Luther's context, he is hearing reports of Christians falling behind enemy lines or being taken as prisoners of war and I mean and there's actually solid historical evidence that many Christians who found themselves uh, subjugated under Islam began to convert and some of them would report they they'd write some you know they'd write a tract or something on why they they uh, converted to Islam and many of them talked about how the the uh, the the external trappings of Islam made the trappings of the Church of Rome seem like child's play, so to speak. You know, if you if you would visit a mosque today, I mean, as as despicable as the content of what you'd hear in a mosque during a sermon on Friday is, one thing you cannot um, ignore is just how seriously they take uh, the you know the, the the prayer times and how how serious they are in. In their their approach to worshiping Allah, they all line up. I mean, they they look like um, it looks like a military personnel gathering for prayer. They they line up shoulder to shoulder, and everybody does everything the same. They're very somber and very reverential in their worship. And so Luther thought that people in Europe who were 
inclined towards a sort of legalistic uh, religion, you know, under the you know under the um, influence of the Roman Catholic Church, would be tempted to to jump ship uh, when they encountered the external trappings of Islam, because they made you know Roman Catholicism look look uh, uh, pathetic. Um, now, as far as Islam being a theology of glory, it even in the Quran and certainly throughout the history of Islam, any time the Muslim empires made advances, territorial or political or you know economic advances, they would always take it as a sign um, of Allah's favor, and um, they would. This would. And in the 16th century, during Luther's day and age, the Ottoman Empire, you know, they from 1521, uh, they start, they reach Belgrade, and within uh, within about eight years, they're all the way up to Vienna. Wow! And this was, you know, they would oftentimes advertise the success as as proof uh, that that uh, God was behind their religion, and because Europe was in a state of disarray, you've got you know a lot of uh, religious turmoil and economic uh, turmoil and also a lot of um, health issues with the plague and things the year ottomans would oftentimes send letters you know they'd have a translator translated into to latin or something um suggesting that the reason why europe was in its state the state it was is because god was turning his back on on europe sounds like some of the current islamic websites today talking about the evils of america the, the great satan <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, I mean it, some evangelical preachers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to, to put that in there. Yeah, Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, oh, good heavens! Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, now, Luther, he, he he didn't have a lot of good to say regarding uh, Islam's treatment of women. Right and um, and notice that they you know in your essay you say that the, that uh, that Islam had such a lax attitude towards divorce and lack of commitment to women that it resembled according to Luther the chaste life of soldiers and their uh, uh, with their harlots. Yeah, <laughs> was, probably sailors would be a little more accurate. I was in the navy and um, I've seen how sailors oh, okay. act at foreign ports, but yeah, right. Um, so. Um, was was Luther overstating there? Was that is that a is that really a, a legitimate complaint against Islam? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, now it is true there are, especially in the West, there are some serious attempts by very liberal Muslim scholars to to um, ensure that women uh, have some sort of equality, uh, you know, in, in Western uh, society. Um, a lot of this is done though to. I think to sort of give a uh, to dress up Islam as if it's a sort of a religion that can mesh well in a you know a liberal pluralistic democracy like like contemporary America, but uh, the, you know the Quran itself is is pretty harsh on women. There's a passage, and I don't have the exact verse for you now, but um, that says if you're you're married, and of course in Islam you're allowed to have up to four wives so long as you can take care of all four of them. Muhammad got an exemption he was able to have at least 11 if not more but um uh, women are if if they are disobedient towards their husband the quran says that the first thing a husband should do is is uh to to speak with their wife and try to set them straight if they don't if they don't uh, um fall in line then the quran says you're to withhold sexual intercourse from them which usually goes the other way around um 
in right. you know, the way men and women relate. Uh, but and the third, if that doesn't work, then the Quran says you're you're permitted to beat your wife. Wow. Some modern translations of the Quran will throw in, usually in parentheses, lightly after beat. Uh, but that's that's not what the Arabic says at all. Mm. Um, elsewhere in the Quran, it says men and women um, are equals, only women are a little lower. And, uh, you know, sort of like Animal Farm, you know, some are more equal than others. Right. But, you know, some of the more progressive or liberal Muslim scholars will say passages like that simply are suggesting that men and women have different roles in society. So there is a move for egalitarianism or the equality of sexes within contemporary westernized Islam. But but in classical Islam, women have always had it really bad. If you spend any time in a you know, Muslim country, a serious Muslim country, or, you know, let's say you go over to England and find yourself in a, a Muslim enclave, you will see that women are pretty much anonymous. Um, we when we lived in, in England, we lived on a in a you know a block of apartments, the whole floor was Islamic, uh, with with the exception of my wife and my apartment. And I literally did not see any of these women's faces. I rarely saw the women uh, for three years. If I did see them, it was almost like, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but it was almost like a curtain was walking around. Their whole face was covered. Wow. Um, and, you know, a Muslim would say, well, the reason why that is is to, to keep, you know, men from eyeballing women and to, to ensure that uh, women are not uh, encouraging the lusts of men. Um, and there might there's certainly some truth to that, but uh, usually how that works out practically is women are, are, are treated pretty appallingly in Islam. Hmm. All right. Well, moving to uh, a little bit more theology proper, um, there's a, it seems like in today's postmodern way of thinking, you know, and with political correctness being what it is, a lot of people, and I've seen this in evangelical and emergent circles, really are interested, as it seems, to kind of paint Islam as uh, just one of the three valid Abrahamic religions. Um, do we worship the same, do Christians worship the same God as as, as Muslims do? Absolutely not. Uh, that's yeah. I, I get. I run up t- against this all the time too. Um, the the Quran is quite clear that those who who consider Jesus to be the Son of God are will be damned. Um, the Quran in chapter five verses one sixteen and one seventeen in the Quran it, it gives a picture of the the last day in the Islamic scenario mm-hmm. where Jesus comes back um, and he separates himself from from Christianity. Um, uh, the Quran the is quite clear that belief that belief that God is three persons in one divine essence, or you know the classic doctrine of the Trinity, and belief that Jesus was was not only true man but also true God is is an absolutely erroneous belief. And in fact, those who hold it according to the Quran will be will be condemned for all eternity. Um, now, the question whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God is, is a bit of a tricky question, because if you read in Romans 1, starting at verse 18, it talks about how everybody has natural knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. And so the way I usually address it is if you take a Muslim, and, and if you could at least theoretically have them separate themselves from their Islamic beliefs or their Islamic theology and just think about the Creator, they they have some sort of conception conception of 
of the deity of the creator. Mm-hmm. But where they go wrong is immediate. They they fill in that um, that uh, that uh, you know that recognition that there is a creator with with Islamic theology, and immediately they they are they are building or they create an idol for themselves. It's not it's not a graven image like a, you know the, the later verses after verse eighteen say, but it's an idolatrous idolatrous conception of who the creator is, and in, and so in that way a Muslim who uh, who uh, who claims to be part of the Islamic religion absolutely does not have uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, you know, they they do not um, worship. Uh, they, in fact, they would say those who worship Jesus will be damned. And so, I, I, it's just. A, um, I don't know how anybody can come to those conclusions. Some will say, though, that well, Abraham looms large in Islamic theology, and you know, Abraham is the since. Islam claims to be claims to that they follow the the religion of Abraham, and and Christians claim it. Therefore, we must be part of the same Abrahamic heritage. But if you read the Quran on this, in particular uh, Quran chapter three, um, there's a passage. I think it's it's verse sixty two or sixty three where Muhammad tells Muslims that, or he's actually calling out to non-Muslims, in particular Jews and Christians saying, let us come to a common word between us and you. Mm-hmm. And it uses this idea, this motif that um, Abraham's the, the, or at least the religion of Abraham, is the one true religion. But the, and, and so a lot of people will cite that passage and say, see, we're all part of this Abrahamic faith. Well, if you read on in the verses that follow, uh, the, uh, the Quran is very clear that Christianity and Judaism have gone sorely astray from re- Abraham's a real religion, right? And so, really, what the Quran teaches is that only Islam. In fact, it's very clear. It says Abraham was the first Hanifan Musliman, the first upright Muslim. Um, Christianity and Judaism have gone sorely astray from that. Uh, they would say that Christianity has, in fact, strayed from monotheism to almost a or a subtle form of polytheism. You know, when it when it suggests that there's not only God the Father, but God the the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Okay, um, are you familiar with the uh, the work with the, the, there's a group out there trying to get Muslims and Christians and Jews communicating together, and it's called a Common Word. Right. And yeah. Yale last year put out uh, you know a response to this Common Word. And insisted, you know, if you read the document itself, in there they say that we have common ground with Muslims in uh, the love of God and love of neighbor. Yes. Is that real common ground with Islam? No. No, it's, first of all, it's conceived differently in Islam. I mean, love of neighbor is really love of your Muslim neighbor, um, or at least that's the, that's the way it's worked out historically. And love of God, well, we love two different gods. They, they, they love Allah who I'd say is an invention. And, you know, we love the, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, and the God of the New Testament writers. Um, so I, I don't think that's common ground at all. Now, you know, this, this so-called dialogue between, you know, Christians and Muslims on, that was started by the common word between us and you mm-hmm. document, I've got real issues with that thing, uh, primarily because it's very clear that the first, the, mo- the first letter sent by those 138 Muslim scholars, and I think it was in Oct- 
October of 2007. It's very clear. In fact, they say on the cover letter, which I don't think is available in English, but it's, I've seen it in Arabic, refers to this thing as a call to Christians uh, in particular, but also by implication Jews. Now, call the word adawa in, in uh, Islam or anida is a call to non-Muslims to call them to Islam. Oh, okay. And that's exactly what you see happened, although nobody's nobody's recognized, well, some have recognized it, but when that letter was issued by the Muslims, the that Yale Center for Faith and Culture immediately responded, um, and after posting something on the Internet, then they published in the New York Times the... Um, Loving God and neighbor together, something like that. Right. And something like 300 major Christian theologians and professors um, signed it, saying, "Yeah, we're all on board with this." And if you look at that that letter, they, they first of all they acknowledge their gratefulness for Muslims finally opening up to to the to Christians. The second paragraph is almost absurd. Uh, they, they say, before we talk about this common ground that we have, we Christians want to extend an apology to you Muslims for two things, and I bet you can guess what they are. Uh, the Crusades. Yeah. Um, and then it, then it says, and the excesses in the, and then it puts this in quotes, the war on terror, as if the war on terror isn't something that's, yeah, is this to qualify that they don't really believe that the war on terror is legitimate or something. But maybe I'm reading too much into it. Um, <laughs> but then if you read the letter, you know, it basically it acknowledges everything that's in that initial letter, the common word between us and you. But then towards the end, it starts referring to Muhammad, and it refers to Muhammad as the prophet Muhammad. Wow. And so if you, if, you, if you have sort of a conspiratorial mind, like I sometimes do, um, Essentially, what that letter acknowledges that there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. Well, you do that in Arabic in front of two adult Muslim males, you immediately become a Muslim. Now, I don't think the Christian signers knew knew that. <laughs> um, so they unwittingly became Muslims? In a way, yeah. Oh, and if man. you look at the sign, the original signers of the Muslim document, some of them, some of them are real liberal, really nice Muslim guys. Muslim theologians. Um, some of them, however, are connected with the Muslim Brotherhood and organizations like that, who are very, or who overtly say that they are they are attempting to to conquer the world for Allah. I mean, they're they're that bold. Oh wow! And I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And you can go online and just type in "common word between us and you," and there's a whole website devoted to this. And since the fall of 2007, it's just gotten worse. So you're you're not a signatory on this common word, is what you're saying? But, uh, absolutely not. Although I have, you can go online and just you know a box will pop up asking if you want to sign it. And uh, but if you put in somebody else's name, they will confirm. They'll send a letter to the email address you provide to so that you can confirm that it's you. Uh huh. And I've gotten all sorts of. <laughs> I, I think my students might try to sign me up or something because oh, I get these. Wow. Just as a joke, but my name isn't, of course, it's not on there. All right. Well, I want to be careful of your time here. My last question for you really comes back to this common ground document. And putting definitions aside for a moment, if if, uh, if 
the common ground that Christianity has with Islam would be loving God and loving neighbor. Doesn't Romans tell us that the law is written on our hearts and that really is the law? And it, that being the case, I mean, we the, the law is what we would say we have common ground with just about every religion in the world. But what is it that makes Christianity distinct from Islam? Oh, boy. Well, there's so many things. I would say there are two things in particular. Christianity, um, theologically speaking, is distinct and unique in, in that it is, it is grounded upon a unique, uh, you might even say non-analogous, revelation of God to man in a person, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, that in itself, and there are all sorts of claims out there for revelation. You know, of course, Muslims claim that God revealed himself uh, through Muhammad, and in particular in the Quran. Um, but there's no way to really to verify that in any way, unlike Christianity, where, you know, you can easily, you anybody has access or can, can evaluate the historic claims of Christianity. It's, that's not the case with Islam. Um, in terms of the, the contours of our theology, it's very different. And in Islam, Allah or God does nothing for you. He simply, because he sent up, he allegedly sent or raised up prophets throughout the, the history of humankind um, to, to give us uh, knowledge of the right path to paradise, he doesn't do anything to help you on that right path. At the least, all he does is gives you, tells you what that right path is. The right path is the Sharia, Islamic law. You stay on that by your own reason and by your own strength, then you're you, you're probably okay. But Allah doesn't do anything for you if you get off that straight path. It's up to you to to turn, to repent, and then to get back on that straight path. Christianity is very different. Where it, it, it's really what it claims is that God does everything for you. So you do everything for God. Um, in Islam, in, in Christianity, God does everything for you. He does it primarily um, uh, in in the sacraments. Okay. Um, and of course, the Word as well. But uh, every Sunday when we go to church, we receive God's Word in the preaching of the gospel, and we receive absolution for our sins in ab- holy absolution, but also in, in the sacrament. Um, so, so very different. It's very different in our relationship. Uh, a relationship between God and man, between Islam and Christianity. Another major difference in the, you know, more, we might say more of the uh, political or civil aspect is that in Islam, there is no distinction between church and state or mosque and state. Right. Um, we are, you know, according to Romans 13, Christians are to acknowledge that God has put in place governments. That doesn't mean every person within the government God has endorsed, but just the idea of government as a, you know, a, um, a, a, a body that protects and ensures peace and tranquility within, a, you know, the given political borders. Um, in Islam, that's not, the, the, um, not only do they acknowledge, or they acknowledge government as divine, but the, the will of the government and the will of the, of the, the mosque are the same thing. There is no distinction at all. And so to be a proper citizen within a Muslim state, you have to be a Muslim. You can be a Christian and Jew, a dhimmi as they're called, but, but uh, you'll find yourself a second-class citizen. Whereas in Christian thinking about life in the civil realm, 
all people, regardless of what ideology they have or theology, are so long as they acknowledge uh, um, uh, the government as their their authority, are are members of that state. So there is no kingdom of the right and kingdom of the left in Islam. It's oh, it, absolutely not. You know, the the church and state, or if you can call it a church, are, are so intermingled. I, does that explain in your mind how Islam spread via the sword rather than the, the you know, mm-hmm. Christianity preached, you know, really absolutely. calling men to repentance and, and belief in Christ? Absolutely. I mean, we can, Christians can love their neighbor because their neighbor is a fellow human being, a creature of God. Um, in Islam, uh, your neighbor is not somebody. I mean, in Christianity, we would say, of course, we want to to share the gospel with our neighbor, but we can still love them. We can still serve them, regardless of what they think about God and about other things. In Islam, you can, I guess, love your neighbor, but it's solely uh, to it's it's a love that at best is a love that can. Will, will be used to compel you or uh, you know, subjugate you to Islam. So really, historically, it's never practically worked out uh, in, a, in a loving way. It's almost always been by the sword of our political and financial persuasion. Well, it sounds like the big difference between Islam and Christianity, then, is, is the big difference between Christianity and every other religion. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, God doing everything for us mm-hmm. in Christ to win our salvation and uh, and propitiate God's wrath. It, 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 there's nothing similar to that in Islam, then. Right. That's that's about right. Uh, we Christianity is, is very unique in several respects, and the, the most unique aspect is that God has done everything for us, um, and so we therefore can live a life of thankfulness. And some would go further and say, in, in response to that, right. that is not. Um, under it's not because of compulsion; it's because we're we're so so thankful. It's the other way around in all other religions, right? Where Scripture says it's uh, God's kindness that leads us to repentance. In uh, Islam, it's the sword that gets you to your knees. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> all right. Well, the book is uh, Theologia et Apologia, and uh, Dr. Adam Francisco is uh, one of the general editors of the of the work. Dr. Francisco, thank you for your time and uh, and the interview today. No problem. All right. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Dr. Adam Francisco uh, on his essay in Theologia et Apologia uh, regarding Luther and Islam and a Christian critique, you know, and response to Islam. And uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Francisco Francisco for coming on Fighting for the Faith. And if you'd like to get a copy of uh, Theologia et Apologia, go to piratechristianradio.com. We have uh, the cover right there on the homepage right now. And if it's past the month of March and, you want, and you're listening to this right now and you're still interested, you can click on the store link at piratechristianradio.com and, and uh, purchase it from there. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. We're at the tail end of our program now. And want to remind you that Pi- uh, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means we depend upon you in order to continue to bring this radio show to you, Um, which means if you are growing in Christ, learning how to correctly uh, handle God's Word, learning about sound doctrine and how to think biblically and think critically and use discernment, uh, then would you consider partnering with us? You can do so a couple of ways. One is by going to fightingforthefaith.com. Clicking on the Donate button, you can make an online contribution or gift that way. Or if you would like, you can uh, write a check, make it payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send it to Post Office Box 508, 
Fishers, Indiana, 46038. Okay, there we go. All right, we're done. <laughs> Actually, I have to, I, we we got to close out the proper way here. Um, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard today, you can at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. We'd like to thank you for staying with us and uh, listening to the program. Hey, until tomorrow, we've got a good program lined up tomorrow already. I'm working on that. Uh, until then, God bless you.